Good afternoon. What's up, Jesse? Tessa, hello. 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 Welcome, everyone, to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I am Jesse once again. And I'm Tessa. So I hear that you you went past the Ben Lomond. I did. Or the Bigelow. Yeah. Excuse me. The Reed Hotel slash Bigelow slash <laughs> Ben Lomond Hotel. <laughs> yeah. I did, yeah. Nice. It's nice that it's uh, still downtown and you can still go visit it and stuff, so... Um, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, that's a, from a few episodes ago. Talked about the Bigelow Hotel or apartment building now. Whatever. Yeah. And it's a crazy history. So it's a really good episode. Recommend you check it out. Yeah. It's, um, we just like to park around the corner from it and then mm-hmm. walk to Harpen Hound for dinner. Yeah. And so walking past, usually you can see like the big arched windows that are facing the street and like the really cool architecture. But all the windows were, like, boarded up. Yeah. So you couldn't even see into the lobby this time around. It was really odd. Weird. I wonder if they're renovating. So I have the Reddit stories today. Amazing. I'm excited. And uh, before I get started with those, just want to remind everyone, if you guys are interested in sending us any spooky stories that you may have, whether they be true or not, you can email those to us. Uh, at SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com or you can DM them to us on Instagram, SpookySoupPodcast. Also, any pictures that are associated with our stories today, we will post those on our Instagram. You can check them out there. Yeah, please send us your stories. I have been asking some friends. We might have a really good one coming in soon. I'm just waiting on them to write it and submit it. So cool. give it some time. Sweet. Okay, well, I will go ahead and start. I have two stories today. Uh, Buckle up. They're a little long, but they're worth the wait. Awesome. This first one is called Never Sleep in Your Car on a Road Trip by Reddit user one underscore planche underscore man. I'm from Connecticut. I was in a long-distance relationship with a girl from Georgia and would often make road trips down to visit her. I don't really mind. I love road trips. I've driven across the United States and back all on my own. There's just something about traveling the highways of the U.S. by yourself that's just so free. To save money, I would sleep in my car. It's not so bad. It's basically camping in a metal tent. Makes you feel like you're really roughing it. I just recline the seat back, keep the key in the ignition just in case, and doze off. No, I don't put anything up to block the windows for privacy, but maybe I should have. The trip down south is a comfortable two-day drive. My stop would usually be somewhere along the Virginia-North Carolina border. So, for my previous trip, that's exactly where I stopped that night. Rest stops were often less trafficked and thus quieter than truck stops. Normally, I would have stopped at a Love's, but I was so tired that I settled for the first rest stop I saw. It was oddly vacant that night with only a couple loan cars sitting for loan under the amber street lamps, most likely travelers with the same idea as myself. I pulled into a parking spot away from the others, under the shadow of a tree and far from the street lamps. I figured I would have more privacy there as opposed to being bathed in light. So I did my usual thing, locked my doors, opened the window just a hair for ventilation, kept my key in, reclined the seat, and went to sleep. I was never interrupted on any of these car camping trips, so I never suspected anything on this one. 
Then a sharp tap woke me up. At first, I thought I had heard it in my dream. I opened my eyes, a bit confused. Since I was leaned back, I was facing the ceiling and couldn't see anything. I hear another tap, like a tiny object hitting a hard surface. It came in in a regular rhythm. Was it raining? Was water dripping onto my windshield? I'm under a tree. Maybe something fell from the branches. Maybe a squirrel or a bird was dropped or something. What if a squirrel was climbing around my car? Or what if it wasn't an animal? The thought occurred to me that it might very well be a person poking around outside. What did they want? Were the doors locked? Yes. The keys were in the ignition. I can leave in an instant. Still, I lay there, completely still, pretending to be asleep, pretending I hadn't heard anything, hoping, whoever it was, they would leave me alone. It was better to not find out. I was too afraid to find out. It was better to stay here in blissful ignorance. Still, the tapping continued. I had to do something. There was no way I was just going to stay there. I had to look. My heart was pounding. Whoever was out there could probably hear it. I decided I was going to look. I was going to raise my head up and see what was making the noise. So that's what I did. What met my eyes sent a jolt through my entire body. Every muscle fiber locked up in pure shock at what I saw. The faint glow of the street lamps cast just enough light for me to make out what I was looking at. There, on the windshield, staring directly at me, was a face. Someone, I presumed to be a woman, was lying on my hood, her face pressed right up against my windshield. Her face was completely still, locked in a permanent grin. I froze in overwhelming terror. The eyes I stared into appeared to have rolled back, showing only the whites. The nose was turned up, pressed painfully against the glass. The lips stretched wide, revealing horrid, rotten teeth. Even in the darkness, I could tell her skin was sickly pale, contrasting her long, filthy black hair. Whoever this was, she was clearly not in her right mind. I don't know how long I sat there, too afraid to move. Finally, I got a grip on myself and shot my hand to the ignition. It turned over, making in that instant the most beautiful sound I had ever heard. For a split second, I was afraid I might be caught in a horror movie scenario, the one where the car won't crank and the killer approaches. I reversed as fast as I could, trying not to give this creeper time to try anything. In my panic, I remember activating the windshield wipers in a futile attempt to get her off. I thought, was I about to drive out of here with some wacko holding onto my hood? Thankfully, I didn't have to worry about that, because as soon as I stopped, the woman leapt off, landing on all fours. Seeing my opportunity, I shifted into drive and gunned it, right as I saw her reaching for the driver's side door. With my foot on the gas, I sped out of the parking lot. Behind me, I heard her let out a piercing shriek, like that of an animal. I looked in my rearview mirror, and for a split second, I thought I saw her chasing me, running on all fours, her black hair swinging wildly around her. I couldn't get a good look, as I rounded a curve in the road leading out of the rest stop and merged with the highway. There, I picked up speed and drove through the night. I did not dare stop again until I saw the morning light. Ugh, spooky. <laughs> it's a similar, uh, similar vibe to your story from last week. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Being 
stranded on a cross-country road trip. Uh-huh. <laughs> At least this person wasn't stranded. At least they could get away. Yes, that's true. They, they weren't stuck in a blizzard. So yeah, The same thing with the face. Um, as you were describing it, it reminded me of ta- Attack on Titan. Like, you know, the Titans on it. They just have, like, these big, huge smiling grins and, like, mm-hmm. just these big eyes. I've, I've seen pictures. I, I haven't watched the show, but, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Good story. Okay, so this next one is uh, from Reddit user Sills Bitten, Sills Biten, if I pronounce that wrong. My bad. Uh, it's This story is called, My Friend Inherited a Mansion. He won't tell me why the basement door is locked. I don't wish death on anyone, and certainly not my relatives, but occasionally I've entertained the daydream of inheriting a fortune. This is unlikely to happen because I'm not aware of anybody in my family that's rich. My best friend, Rodney, thought the same thing, but as it turns out, he had an unknown estranged great uncle that was absurdly wealthy. The cause of his death was unknown, as was the source of his money, but Rodney didn't seem to care. As the last living member of his family, everything was to be left to him. There was, however, one condition to his inheritance. It was strange, but simple. Move into this belated great-uncle's mansion on the outskirts of town and live there for a year. If he did this, he'd be set for life. If not, he wouldn't get a penny. His move and date coincided with a two-week business trip that sent me to the other side of the country. When I got back to town, I went straight to see him. He didn't answer his phone, so I figured I'd just drop by. Raindrops began to patter on my windshield as I pulled up to the private drive. The gate was closed and I didn't know the code, so my only option was to park my car by the entrance and slip past the wrought iron gates on foot. I pulled my jacket collar closer to my neck to shield against the slanting raindrops and trudged into the mist. Massive oak trees stood guard on both sides of the driveway. Even the forest here seemed to belong to a rich man. There were no underbrush or scraggly pines, only ancient dominating hardwoods that cut off the sunlight from any small plants that tried to grow amongst them. About a quarter of a mile down the driveway, the trees receded and gave way to a large clearing. In the middle of the clearing sat a behemoth. I looked up at the Victorian masterpiece that was now my friend's home. I felt small beneath it, like a child that was being scolded by an angry stranger. Up ahead, I could see that the front door was left wide open. I hesitated when I reached the threshold. Rodney, you in there? No answer. I stepped into the foyer and cautiously walked down the main hallway. The interior was immaculate and looked as if it were plucked straight out of the 18th century. An orange glow danced around the walls, up ahead as small crackles and pops shot through the air. A fire was roaring in the biggest private library I had ever seen. Books were stacked from floor to ceiling on all four walls. One leather chair faced the fireplace. A figure sat hunched over in it and stared into the flames. Rodney, are you okay? I asked. My words hit him like the cold water as he snapped his bloodshot eyes in my direction. Where had he been? Look what the cat dragged in. Glad you're here. Honestly, the timing couldn't be better, he said. Really? Why do you say that? Rodney sprang to his feet and drug up another chair to sit next to his. Its metal legs scratched the heart pine floors like nails on a chalkboard. Come here, sit next to me. Something was off, but I complied anyway. 
He glanced over his shoulder before continuing in a hushed tone. A being is contained in a body, I answered. Yes, and as people, we're very good at identifying another person's body, but there might be other entities that are much bigger than us, not as contained as you and me, but just as real. Why are we whispering? I asked. It's the house. I think it's listening. You think the house is alive? Are you high? On the contrary, I've never been more sober in my life. Just go with me for a second. After all they say, it's the sign of an intelligent mind to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. He always said this when he was about to say something extra crazy. Okay, fair enough. Tell me what's going on. If a house wants to communicate with you, how might it do so? It doesn't have a mouth. It can't just come out and say, Hello, good sir. It would have to find other more subtle ways to interact with you. It might influence a dream or emanate a certain atmosphere or feeling. It could even be as simple as a door that closes by itself just at the right time, signifying that you're on the right train of thought. Or the wrong one. Who says that a house would have altruistic intentions? I said. Exactly. See, this is why I need you to stay here. Keep me grounded. If I'm going to make it through the year, I'm going to need your help. What happened to make you think this place is so haunted? At this, a glossed over look spread across his eyes. Nothing. Just ignore me. I've been cooped up in here for two weeks, and it's rained every single day. This place is big enough to get lost in. Speaking of which, let me give you the tour. Rodney seemed to revert more or less back into his usual self as he showed me from room to room. The house was a labyrinth. I need a map to remember all the hallways, wings, and levels. The only reason anybody would ever build a house this big is vanity. Would you mind staying here with me for a few weeks, just while I'm getting used to this place? You could pick any room you want. He gestured to one of the many bedrooms that was nearly as big as my apartment. I'll be honest with you, Rod. This place creeps me out. I know. Me too, he laughed. But I'm asking you as a friend, and plus, once I get that money, I'll make it worth your while. I'll stay for a few weeks, if you need me to. You don't have to pay me. Thanks, man, as he clasped me on the shoulder. He showed me every room to the top two floors in the main level, but as we were working our way through the basement, there was one door that he skipped over. He didn't even acknowledge its existence. Wait a minute, I said as he carried on down the hallway. What's in that room? I, I think it's just some storage or something. It was locked when I got here. I'm surprised you haven't bust down the door out of plain curiosity. I haven't really thought about it. There's only a thousand other rooms to keep me occupied, he said. He kept moving, so I followed after him to finish the tour. That evening, after eating Chinese takeout and watching TV, Rodney retired to the master suite, and I went to the first room that I could find on the second floor. The moonlight shone in streaks across my bed as I laid staring at the ceiling. I left the blinds open intentionally. It always takes me a while to fall asleep, and I didn't like the idea of laying there in complete darkness. I expected to hear the creaks and groans that are typical of an older house but they never came. If I would have left the blind shut, it would have felt like I was floating in space, like some kind of antique sensory deprivation tank. The morning dew on the grass was cool on my bare feet. I didn't know where I left my shoes. Come to think of it, I didn't know how I got to the front lawn in the first place. The winter breeze hit the exposed skin on my chest. 
alarming me to my condition of my clothes. They hung off of me in tatters. I looked up at the house, and my eyes were drawn to the far window in the attic. A pale, stoic face stared down at me. More faces appeared in adjacent windows. I scanned the whole third floor. They were there too. My eyes flitted down to the second and then the main level. All of the windows held a white face, except for one. My door closed and I sat up in bed, drenched in sweat. Footsteps paced down the hallway. Part of me wanted to crawl under the bed, but that's childish. It was probably just Ronnie. I decided to go and check on him. A dank draft met me in the hallway. The footsteps were now on the main level. I hustled down the stairs in a hasty pursuit, but all was silent once I reached the bottom step. I made my way to Rodney's room and slowly opened the door. He was curled up in bed with the slack-jawed look of deep sleep on his face. Couldn't be sure, but I thought I heard a small metallic clink come from the basement. It was the same sound that Rodney's door made when I carefully pulled it open. I went back to my room, but I didn't go back to sleep. Just as the sun finally peeked over the horizon, loud clanging noises started on the main floor. I unlocked my door and went to investigate. Good morning, my old friend. I hope you're hungry, said Rodney with a toothy grin. He was flipping eggs in a cast iron skillet. I'll eat a little bit. I'm not a big breakfast person, though. How'd you sleep? Like a rock. I knew he should have been well rested, but the dark circles under his eyes said otherwise. Did you hear anything last night? I asked. No, did you? I heard footsteps in the halls. I thought maybe it was you, but I checked on you, and you were sound asleep. Also, I think I heard a door close in the basement. I'm not sure. It was probably just the house making noises. I've heard all kinds of things over the last two weeks that turned out to be nothing. What's in the locked room in the basement, Rodney? He stared at me with that same crazy look he had in the library. The redness in his eyes seemed to smolder and burn just as the eggs were now doing. I told you. I don't know. Do you think I'm lying or something? No, I believe you. I just thought I heard someone go into that room last night. That's all. He snapped his attention back to the burning eggs. You were probably just hearing things. You'll get used to it. We ate our overcooked breakfast in silence, and as the sound of rain began to fall against the windows, I thought about leaving for the day, but the rain steadily increased, and with it came the occasional burst of lightning. I wasn't going anywhere until this cleared up. I went to the library and kindled a fire in the fireplace. After searching through piles of historical and philosophical books, I found something that was more in my lane. A Thousand Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. I spent most of the day aboard the Nautilus, only taking small breaks for snacks and to stretch my legs. It was during the last of these one intermissions that I wandered over to a desk on the far side of the room. There was a journal and a pen sitting on top of it. It might not be good manners, but I opened it and flipped through the most recent entry. Time slips by, and I slip under. I will not lie, I cannot shun her. As thin as age, as blind as thunder, I fear I have become asunder. It was Rodney's handwriting. I didn't know what to think. The TV turned on in the living room. I closed the book and retreated to my room. As I sat barricaded behind a wall of pillows, the storm outside grew in intensity. Sheets of rain were hurled against the house and cracks of lightning threatened to knock pictures off the wall. I tried to ignore it and read my book until the power went out. 
My phone was dead, so I just lay there hoping to fall asleep soon. I'd made up my mind. Rodney meant a lot to me, but I was leaving this house first thing in the morning. Maybe I'd be able to convince him to come with me. Powerful footsteps charged up the stairs like a bull. They were headed straight to my room and not slowing down. The door burst open and Rodney went straight to the windows, throwing them open. What are you doing? I yelled. Don't you feel it? The storm's trying to bring her down. He vigorously patted the walls. I didn't say anything. His usual level-headed persona was now completely fractured. There's room for you too. Trust me. Don't you worry about that. He was now pacing back and forth in front of my bed. You're not as contained as you think you are, my simple friend. Don't you want to be part of something much bigger than yourself? Far grander than you could ever be on your own? A door slammed somewhere beneath us. Rodney, what is in the locked room in the basement? I pleaded. Isn't it obvious? My great uncle, of course. That was the other part of his will. His coffin was to be left in the basement. He didn't want to leave this house. Not ever. Fearful disbelief washed over me. I was temporarily frozen, but I forced my legs to move and got out of bed. Footsteps were now slowly plodding up the stairs. I stuck my head out the door, and that same dank draft wafted up to my nostrils. A tall, slender shadow danced his way onto the wall across from the stairs. We've got to go now, Rodney. Go? Why would you want to go? Just give up already? No one ever leaves here. I tried to drag him out of the room and down the hall to the next set of stairs, but he wouldn't move, and the struggle quickly shifted from me trying to drag him away to him trying to restrain me. He overpowered me, and I tumbled backwards, falling onto the corner bedpost. It broke in half, and we all collapsed on the floor. The steps were now right outside my room. To hell with this, I said as I grabbed the bedpost and cracked Rodney upside the head. His eyes rolled back, and he went limp. I picked up the dead weight of his body and hoisted it out the window. He fell like a sack of potatoes into the bushes below. I looked behind me to see cold and stiff fingers grasp the edge of the doorframe, and then I jumped out into the rain. It took all of my strength to pick up Rodney and throw him over my shoulder. Slowly, I made my way across the lawn and down the driveway. Once I had put enough distance between us and the house, I looked back to see a pale, white face looking right out my bedroom window. Mm. <laughs> that reminded me of Hill House. I haven't seen that. Oh, you need to. It's so good. Yeah, that was creepy. That was a good one. Sorry, yeah. that one was a little bit longer, but I thought it was uh, it was good. Well written, good build up. Yeah, I loved it. Yep. I could totally see the corpse's hands like curling around the door frame. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Classic horror movie move. Uh-huh. Yep. So good. So what do you have for us today? Ooh, all right. I've got a crazy story. One that I'm willing to bet you have never heard of before. Okay. So it's somewhat local. It has ties to Utah, so it's my local-ish story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So lately I've been really, really hyper-focused on studying cults. I've always been into learning about them, and I've just been hitting them really hard this last year, like uh, Jonestown, stuff like that. I just find it all really intriguing. And my studies of cults led me to this article where 
Someone was quoted from a cult that I had never heard of before, so I decided to look into it. And this is the story of Ervil LeBaron, more popularly, lovingly known as the Mormon Manson. You. Okay. So, while I don't really think we have destinies or chain of chaotic events that we can't escape, this is definitely a case that would support the butterfly effect theory, which, if you don't know, According to Wikipedia, it's the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. A very small change in initial conditions creates a significantly different outcome, such as the flap of a butterfly's wings setting enough events into motion to start a hurricane. For example, in the game Until Dawn, my favorite game, I talk about it all the time. (laughs) It's true. The entire premise is based on the butterfly effect theory. The game is essentially a playable movie where you make decisions for your character, which then determines their fate at the end of the game. So in one scene, you the player, you have an option to cause harm to an animal to look cool to your friends, or you risk humiliation by walking away. This decision between harm or no harm at the very beginning of the game, determines what will happen to that same character at some later point in the game when they're facing life and death options. It's a crucial choice, so you better not choose wrong, but you don't know what the right choice is. Right. A real-life example of the butterfly effect, and arguably the most popular, is the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Which, if you don't know, um, his cab driver turned down a wrong street on their way to visit the wounded victims from an earlier failed assassination attempt on the Archduke's life. Coincidentally, a man from the earlier failed attempt was drinking at a cafe at the very corner that they turned around. While the cab driver was backing up the car to correct his mistake, the assassin saw an opportunity and took the shot, instantly killing Franz Ferdinand and his wife, which ultimately led to the start of World War I. Mm-hmm. Right. So keep this butterfly effect theory in mind while I tell you the story of the Mormon Manson. Okay, awesome. So it's widely known that in the 1800s, the LDS, or Mormon Church, practiced polygamy, which, you know, is multiple spouses married to one person. In 1890, church leaders announced that they would no longer encourage polygamy and eventually denounced the practice in its entirety. However... Various members of the church continued to practice polygamy even though they were told to stop. Many of these members were excommunicated from the church and were no longer allowed to claim to be members. So what did they do? They moved south of the border to continue practicing plural marriage to avoid law enforcement in the U.S., which was heavily cracking down on polygamists since it was made illegal in 1862. Alma LeBaron Sr. was one of the excommunicated polygamist leaders and he moved his two wives and eight children down to Chihuahua, Mexico. Some of his sons would later visit Salt Lake City, Utah, and be inspired to organize what they called the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times, with Joel LeBaron, one of the sons, being appointed as the president of their newfound religion. This group claimed to be a Mormon fundamentalist sect that's based in northern Mexico, with ties to Utah, California, Colorado, Texas, and even Alaska. One of these brothers, Ervil LeBaron, 
aka the main character of our story, was appointed as the patriarch of the church and number two in authority right behind Joel. He would go on to have 13 wives and 52 children. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. He was busy. (laughs) (laughs) In 1967, Ervil started preaching that he was seeing holy visions and that God was warning him that Joel was a corrupt leader. He directly contradicted Joel's position of power, resulting in him being excommunicated from his own brother's church. Motivated by vengeance, Ervil founded his own church and competitively named it the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God. Ervil taught his followers that he was the one Joseph Smith who founded the LDS Church, um, that Ervil was the one that he prophesied about in Scripture, that he was, quote, one mighty and strong, who was destined by Joseph Smith to save the church and restore order to its members in the last days. Ervil completely betrayed his brother Joel and threw many false accusations at him. This caused multiple members of Joel's church to leave and to join Ervil's church. Ervil named his organization the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God based on a prophecy in the Book of Mormon, which says that at the end of days there will be only two churches, the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil. He purposely did this in, an, in a way to polarize himself from Joel and fuel his followers' anger against Joel, insinuating that he was the devil and that Ervil was the Lamb of God. On August 20th, 1972, Ervil orchestrated his very first murder. Yo. He commanded his followers to murder Joel, his own brother who was living in Mexico. He claimed to have heavenly visions and was told to get rid of Joel, all in the name of a blood atonement sacrifice, which is a fundamentalist belief that if someone commits a sin so huge, so eternal, that even Jesus Christ's atonement can't vouch for them in the afterlife. Therefore, they must be executed in a way that allows their blood to spill onto the earth to make up for their sin, hence the name blood atonement. Here's a quote from Ervil himself. The Lord wants this guy killed more than anything. Simply do whatever has to be done. Anybody gets in the way, men, women, children, it makes no difference. Ervil was arrested for Joel's murder in Mexico and actually got a get-out-of-jail-free card because his conviction was overturned. Now, we're not entirely sure why, because the evidence was clear that he organized this murder, but it's suggested that a bribe had something to do with it. Oh, yeah. That, that was my first guess. Same. You'd think that Ervil learned his lesson, but like many serial killers, their first blood is invigorating. It ignites something in them. They gain a false, momentary sense of power over their victims, And when those feelings inevitably wear off, they just have to get that high again. Soon after his release in Mexico, Ervil targeted other polygamous groups who dared to rival him, and he also targeted anyone who wouldn't submit to him fully. He demanded blind following. He's lovingly called the Mormon Manson because he didn't commit the murders himself. However, just like Charles Manson, He would organize the attacks, prepare his followers, mostly women, and coach them on how to murder the people on his hit list. (laughs) What the heck? So, for example, a man named Dean Vest voiced his concerns about how things were evolving in the cult, and he was actually considering leaving. Having heard about this, Ervil commanded his tenth wife, Fonda White, 
to ask Dean to come over and help fix her washing machine. This was just a ploy to get him alone so she could kill him in private. Vonda, of course, went along with it because Ervil was God on Earth, and saying no to God meant eternal damnation. A rival polygamous leader who refused to bow down to Ervil went for a drive with some of the cult members. I'm not sure what got him in the car. Maybe they were just asking for help. Maybe they wanted to be friends. And when they return, that polygamous leader was no longer with the group of guys. They told Ervil, quote, he had been shot, doused with lime, and buried in the desert. Yo. So we don't know where he is. Wow. He's somewhere. Yep. Ervil's also credited with the killing of his own 17-year-old daughter who was pregnant at the time of her death. She wanted to leave his cult and spoke out against her own father. Of course, Ervil just couldn't have that, and he needed to keep up appearances. He needed everyone in his community to be assured that everything was fine and dandy. She was strangled to death. On June 1st, 1979, Ervil was again arrested by Mexican police and sent to the States for sentencing because over the years, his cult would move between the States and Mexico um, just as times got rough and they needed more jobs or money. He was sentenced to life in prison at the Utah State Prison in Draper. While there, he wrote a 400-page Bible called the Book of the New Covenants that included a list of names of all the people he wanted dead. 20 copies of his Bible were printed and dispersed to his loyal followers, and they continued on their murderous spree even after he was incarcerated. Oh my gosh. He died in a cell in 1981. The names on this list mostly consisted of ex-members who left the cult, any direct polygamist uh, rivals, leaders, or anyone who dared speak up against Ervil. After Ervil's death, his loyal, brainwashed followers continued his blood legacy, and they hit hard. Ervil's grandson had left the cult and started a life of his own, trying to deprogram and begin again. One day, he and his eight-year-old daughter were murdered while out running errands. Even though only the father's name was on the hit list, the kid was shot too. Ervil's followers didn't care who they killed along the way. No one was to get in the way of their God's holy mission. At the same time of that murder, which was four o'clock, another man was shot numerous times in his office chair. These two men were brothers and both ex-members of the LeBaron cult. Another man was murdered at the same four o'clock time on the same day, and he was a stepson of the LeBarons. These three crimes carried out in different locations at the exact same time are known as the four o'clock murders, and there's a lot more information around that. It rocked everyone in Texas. It was a big deal. So if you want to read into that further, I suggest it. One of the original brothers who wouldn't join Ervil's cult was killed in a car crash. Many attempts had been made on the brother's life for over a decade by Ervil's followers, but none were successful in killing him. When he died in the car crash, it was also coincidentally the same exact day that Ervil died in his prison cell. So maybe not as much as a coincidence after all, but we might never know. I can't find exact numbers on how many murders are tied to Ervil LeBaron, but for some reason, they vary from sources. But from what I could find, this is what's approximated. Ervil is responsible for around 20 murders while he was alive, all for the sake of the blood atonement sacrifice that I mentioned earlier. He's credited for orchestrating at least 30 more murders after his death. 
which were all names from his Bible's hit list. So far, 50 murders have been linked to him and accounted for. I say so far because things get weirder. A man in Tooele County, Utah went missing after coming in contact with cult members. He's never been found, and many other people from the cult have gone missing and the remains have never been discovered. Whoa. Some ex-members are still hiding to this day because they're terrified of Ervil's hit list and those brainwashed enough to carry out his killing spree. Needless to say, that number 50 could be much higher than we actually know. Here's where the flap of the butterfly's wings turns into a hurricane. Do you remember that news story from 2019 about the Mormon family that was gunned down and burned alive by the cartel in Mexico? Um, vaguely. Yeah, so when I was reading about this, I, it would like rung about it, I just remembered it. Right. So, in total, there were nine victims, including mothers and children. They are all relatives of the LeBaron clan, and they were traveling along an infamous drug trade route, which cons- coincidentally neighbored two of their polygamous compounds. Ah, yes, actually, I do remember this. Yeah. Because I remember thinking... Where were the husbands or dads? They weren't with them. Exactly. So I was like, sorry, that's that's what sparked my, my memory. So yeah. yeah. Now, what group carried out this murder exactly? Well, the dominant cartel of this particular trade route is Sinaloa, better known as El Chapo's guys. Ooh. For the record, this is a complete speculation, not my opinion. But it's rumored that the polygamous families of this area, while not Ervil LeBaron's direct children, but still relatives and intermarried with the families, they had a type of understanding, you could say, with El Chapo, some sort of agreement. Hmm. Author Sally Denton of The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land book about the LeBarons has this to say about it. I think it's naive for the public to believe they were just friendly neighbors saying hello at Sicario checkpoints. I don't believe you just live with some of the most violent people in the world without having accommodations. I think they were helping with guns. Some think this was an accidental killing. Others think it was the result of an ongoing rival cartel war that exploded right after El Chapo was sent to prison in the States. The Juarez and the Sinaloa cartels are fighting over that same drug drug trade route. I agree with Sally Denton that you don't simply be neighbors with El Chapo's guys and have a good time. <laughs> I guess we might never know what the true connection between Ervil LeBaron's family and that of the Sinaloa cartel is, but it's wild to me how one law in the United States set off this chaotic chain of events leading to a massacre and possible connections with one of the world's most notoriously evil men. I want to end this story with a quote from one of Ervil's daughters who was forced into marriage twice at just 13 years old. I had my aunt and younger sister who were blood atoned. I was 11 years old and it was traumatizing. While holding back tears, she says, anybody that threatened to go to the police or young mothers who wanted to leave with their children, those were grounds to kill them. That concludes this true story of Mormon Manson, who left behind a legacy of generational fear. And I'm flabbergasted that he's not spoken about more. Everyone, and I mean, everyone knows who Charles Manson was. Everyone's heard of Helter Skelter. Everyone knows about the murder of Sharon Tate. 
Yet no one has heard of Erval LeBaron, even though he was responsible for five times the amount of killings than the Manson family ever did. So, I guess watch out for cults, everyone. They're scary. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you're right. I've actually never heard of Evil LeBaron, Erval LeBaron. Evil. <laughs> scary guy. And what's insane is this happened in late 70s, early 80s. So, this is recent. Yeah. I found articles about him, but like, it doesn't dive into it. You know, they're all very surface level. I'm like, people need to talk about this more, but no one is. Well, it's a good thing you did. I guess so. <laughs> and all of our many thousands of listeners <laughs> will we'll hear it. Wow. Insane. I'm glad you shared this story because, yeah, it's not, it's definitely not something I've heard of before and definitely something that people need to, uh, need to know. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, why did, why did Charles Manson get all this attention? Probably because he killed a... Sharon Tate. He killed Sharon Tate. Well, his, his family did. He never killed anyone. Right, right. He just orchestrated it. Mm-hmm. Psychopath. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Yet, Erval's family killed five times more people. The Mansons were convicted of nine murders. Erval is 50 and counting. Yeah, for and that's what we know. 30 after his death, after he died. That's how powerful his control was and how long his hit list was that he left in his Bible. Yeah, sure. And apparently, when a lot of this was coming to light, um, I believe it was when that family was killed in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, other people from this family paid to have his Bible put online. I haven't found it yet, but I will. <laughs> I was going to say, I want to see that or I want to get a copy of it. Right. Maybe, what is it, 20 copies or something? Only 20. And it's only 400 pages too, which yeah. is short compared to the actual like Holy Bible. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. S- very not cool, but good to know. Yeah. Spooky. And I guess just on a last note, you know, no one who's in a cult knows that they're in a cult. Yeah. They're everywhere. Like, you hear about people getting busted all the time. So, I think one of the best things our listeners can do is just do your own research and learn about the magnetism of these sorts of leaders and just protect yourself. Smart. Yeah. Good way to end end the episode. Okay. Well, uh, we'll scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. <laughs>